Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. Politicians can only legislate within a narrow spectrum, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we talk to the people shifting what is politically possible. After the end of Prohibition in the 30s, alcohol wasn't made entirely legal. It instead became subject to state regulation. Lawmakers and regulators have tried a number of strategies to limit alcohol's use and lessen its harms. Unfortunately, too much of alcohol control policy today is designed to enrich a handful of people who engage in the business rather than to protect the public. So today I'm talking with someone about how this policy works, how it ought to improve, and what it takes to change policy on this issue. Elizabeth Stell is from the Commonwealth Foundation of Free Market Think Tank in Pennsylvania. Elizabeth and her colleagues have been taking on their state alcohol or their state-owned alcohol control monopoly for over a decade. And they were able to chip away at some of Pennsylvania's industry protections in 2015, and they continue their work to liberalize alcohol policy in the Keystone State. Elizabeth, before we get into your work, can you lay out what the state government does to regulate alcohol policy in Pennsylvania? Thank you, James. Well, in Pennsylvania, we're a bit unique. We are one of two states that has state control of both the retail and wholesale side of alcohol, which means we have state stores where the average person goes to buy alcohol, um, but we also control the distribution of that alcohol. So if you want a bottle of wine to your house, there are state regulations you have to jump through. Um, the state bureaucrats are involved in every aspect of alcohol distribution and selling to the point that even wineries and breweries deal a lot uh, with the state um, liquor monopoly. So we have a lot of state regulation, a lot of taxes, a lot of bureaucracy when it comes to alcohol in the Keystone State. What would you like to see out of this policy area instead of what you have now? Well, we would like to see a lot more progress than what we've made so far. Um, anyone who's ever been to Pennsylvania might be surprised uh, to find in a grocery store that there's not an aisle full of wine. Um, you have to go to a beer distributor. Um, you can't get a bottle of tequila at the grocery store. Um, there's no alcohol in your Rite Aid. Uh, you have very few options. There's a lot of inconvenience. So yes, we want to see that inconvenience remedied. We want people to be able to easily purchase alcohol responsibly. Um, but more importantly, we want to make sure that there are fewer barriers to entry in this part of the economy. Um, you know, microbreweries is one thing that comes to mind that's very popular the last, um, last decade. We've seen an explosion in that. The PLCB, the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board in Pennsylvania, makes it much more difficult for you to start and be successful in the microbrewery. Same thing with the winery. Um, same thing with private wholesalers. So there's a lot, there's a large swath of the economy that is negatively affected by our liquor monopoly. So that's really what drives this policy change. Um, and COVID has really brought this to a whole new level. The amount of hoops that restaurants have had to jump through with the PLCB is just, is just, um, I mean, it, it's amazing. Um, the number one reason why restaurants are afraid to stay open despite the shutdown orders from the governor um, is because they're afraid they'll lose a liquor license. So the state is holding that over these entrepreneurs. 
even when the choice is between stay open and keep your employees paid or close and go bankrupt and all your employees go on the unemployment rolls. So how did you and your colleagues first get engaged on this issue? So we started looking at the liquor issue in Pennsylvania more than a decade ago. I'd say probably more like 2009, 2010. And what we saw in liquor uh, was the same that we were seeing in lots of other policy areas, is that it was a public sector union that was really the only obstacle between um, the liquor system that we had and good liquor policy going forward. Uh, Our state stores are unionized by uh, a a union, um, which also unionizes a lot of grocery stores. So they're very politically powerful. And that's the reason why something that regularly pulls 60, 70% of people across party lines want privatization. The reason they don't get it is because of this one entrenched interest, which has a lot of, um, let's say questionable activities. Um, For instance, they don't register as lobbyists, even though we know they do a lot of lobbying. Um, So that's really what compelled us to get involved is because uh, we see the number one obstacle to good policy in Pennsylvania are public sector unions. So this was one way to to address one very powerful public sector union. How does a uh, mandatory alcohol distribution system run by a public sector union increase public health? It's a very good question. Um, There's no evidence that we can find that it has Um, superior health impacts, or that Pennsylvania is more successful at keeping underage people, for instance, from consuming alcohol or binge drinking. Um, There is no evidence that we have lower DUI rates because we have controlled alcohol. Um, So the health and safety argument uh, does not live up to scrutiny. And going beyond that, the way that our liquor control board is currently structured, it has dueling dueling goals. On one hand, it's supposed to protect people from liquor and alcohol abuse and drunk driving and those sorts of things. On the other hand, it's supposed to promote the sale of alcohol. Um, How do you do both of those things at the same time? Uh, That's a big question mark. And so we think government's role should be, you know, the protection, health and safety of individuals, you know, regulate regulations that make sense, um, not the not promoting the sale um, of this of this controlled substance. So this is all about you know clarifying the mission, if you will. Um, and uh, we've made some progress. Um, but one example on the wholesale side, you know that's something that most people don't really have um, any that aren't familiar with the wholesale side. Just give you one example, James, of how um, backwards this is. If you're a restaurant, you do not get your alcohol delivered. Let's say you're an Italian place and you order lots of wine um, and you have a a special wine from Italy, maybe that you serve at your restaurant. The PLCB doesn't do delivery. You have to go to the warehouse on certain hours to pick up your order. Um, In today's world of Amazon and, you know, two day, one day shipping, that just seems completely backwards. Now, why is that? I mean, it seems like if you were a public sector union had a, who had a lot of say in this policy, it would make a lot of sense to be in that type of uh, distribution business for those particular wines. Yeah, well, sense is the pivotal word there. Um, there's there's really no rhyme or reason to it. Um, basically, it's just that the system was initially created to make alcohol as difficult and inconvenient and expensive to procure as possible 
And over the years, they've tried to improve it as public opinion has changed, um, as we begin to view alcohol differently in our country. Um, but they've never overhauled the system. They've just created Band-Aids and, and patches. And so um, when you have a monopoly um, and your customers complain, there's no alternative. I mean, you're still the only place they're going to get that wine. Um, so there's there's very little incentive for the PLCB to improve their customer service. So this has been a mess for a while, and there have been perennial calls in Pennsylvania to to do something about this. What happens to those calls? What happens when people are upset on this issue and write their lawmaker uh, that something ought to change? Yeah, so we've seen a couple of instances where we've made some significant progress. Um, We had some lawmakers, especially in the House of Pennsylvania, who really took this up as uh, a priority issue, that they were tired of all the waste and um, the potential for corruption, um, the proved corruption in some cases. And, and just uh, the, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So um, in the early 2000s, quite a few things came to light that um, initially culminated in a 2015 push to completely privatize the system. So in 2014, Uh, The State Ethics Commission found four um, former officials at the Liquor Control Board had violated the ethics law. So they had done things um, like accepted very luxurious gifts from different dealers, um, golf outings, sporting events, meals, all different different types of things in order to sell those um, producers' products over others. And one example, um, an official accepted a long list, including um, long list, I guess, including strip club entertainment, um, Steelers tickets, Eagles tickets, World Series tickets, that kind of stuff. So it wasn't about, you know, were you producing the products that Pennsylvanians wanted to drink? It was just more about how many gifts could you lavish on these officials? And the Liquor Control Board was basically um, a reward uh, for, for you know, faithful political servants, right? This was kind of their... Um, you know, their, uh, their special, you know, cushy jobs mm-hmm. uh, where they could um, finish off their career as a... There a, is a technical term for that. It is called a sinecure. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so that, I mean, that just rubbed people the wrong way. Um, and people were just tired of having to go three places to get their alcohol. You had to go to the beer store to get beer. You had to go to the liquor store to get your liquor. Um, you had, and then you had to go to the grocery store to get your food. So if you were having a party, you couldn't, there was no such thing as one-stop shopping. So that culminated in a 2015 push to completely privatize the system. Um, it passed both chambers, the governor vetoed it, but because we got it that far, we were able to come back and get what we call a modernization, which is basically wine and beer and limited quantities available in grocery stores. So Still a lot of issues, but we made um, a substantial step in the right direction. And when the sky didn't fall <laughs> from that reform, people became much more open to the idea of fully privatizing the system. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. those 2015 reforms. You said there's corruption, there's dissatisfaction, and there's uh, some people drawing some more attention to reform. Um did you need both the corruption and the dissatisfaction for something to happen? I'm not sure if we needed it, but it certainly helped because it tapped different groups of the public, right? Some people are very driven by good government, transparency, you know, moral um, fiber. Other people just want convenience. They're just pragmatic. 
So it helped us expand um, the the part of the population that was motivated by this. The the challenging issue with liquor in Pennsylvania has always been um, yeah, a distributed benefit, um, but a very narrow base of people who are invested in the status quo, who will fight tooth and nail to defend that status quo. Um, so, so yeah, I think both of those things going on certainly helped bring it, um, bring it to a climax. Um, and the governor was basically forced to do something. Um, he couldn't just veto everything related to liquor. He had to give them something. And so in the end, um, you could argue that the public sector union did lose. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about that legislative battle. It's uh, you've got some bills introduced. How did you get it from just being something that people talk about to something that lawmakers are actually voting on? Well, it was relatively easy to tell stories about how bad the status quo is because the Liquor Control Board is is in a a ranking of its own. I mean, it is so out there, James. Um, the stories are just amazing that it's 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 born for a marketing campaign here. I mean, you have situations where the liquor control board went to California to get a special wine made that they could sell in Pennsylvania stores, even though Pennsylvania has a very robust wine industry. I mean, how do you feel about that when the only place you can sell your wine um, is also taking your taxpayer dollars to fund another type of wine made in another state? I mean, it just story after story after story of boneheaded ideas. We had these kiosks where you had to breathe into a straw and then they would determine if you, you know, you didn't have a higher elevated alcohol content level. So you could then buy a bottle of wine, complete failure. I mean, complete cluster. So I, it was very easy to demonstrate a need for this. Um, the challenge was to make sure that it was a priority above you know, other things, education, transportation, fiscal issues, right, that are always front and foremost on the state level. The so we alleged, were able- limited attention span of legislators. Yeah. But I think a lot of them can do a lot more than, than they get credit for. You know, when they want to, James, they can do a lot. It's all about building momentum. And, and so what we were able to do is tie it to a budget issue and say, look, if you privatize these stores, you can reap a million dollars in the upfront sale of um, these licenses and the states, the state stores to private owners. And that really caught people's attention in a way that we haven't been able to capture before. So once you're able to put some numbers to it, and that was a study that um, went out, uh, I think it was 2013, 2014, Mm -hmm. we're able to get some numbers on what this would actually mean. Um, That got the attention of folks that beforehand had just saw liquor as a secondary issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So wanted to talk a little bit uh, just about that, of, of, the, of the, how this policy works, which is in Pennsylvania, everything goes through this one board and this one board doesn't do a, a particularly good job or they do some things that are, uh, that are objectionable or they're outright corrupt. And what you want to do is instead saying, well, you know, the state doesn't need to do that itself. It can sell licenses to businesses to do that for them and regulate them through these licensing rules. And and you're saying that in addition to fixing the mismanagement of the state control board, uh, the state can actually uh, raise more revenue than they can if they control everything. Exactly. I mean, there are already private wholesalers that exist, right? So why are we doing something that the market already does and does it more efficiently? 
and the consumers are happier. Um, you know, why, why are we controlling stores that sell alcohol when there are lots of entrepreneurs that would maybe want to open up, you know, their own liquor store and we're preventing those people from, from having that, from, you know, pursuing that dream in Pennsylvania. So yeah, um, it's, it's a basic question of why is government in the business of doing something that the market does very well on its own. Um, and, and that the fact that most of our taxes and revenue that comes from the liquor board would remain, even if we privatize the system, uh, speaks to the ability to create more revenue and less expenditures, you know, which is the best of both worlds um, for someone who is concerned about the size and scope of government. So you had three things going for you in the legislative battle. You had problems with what was going on currently. You had dissatisfaction among people and you had the ability to increase revenues for the state. Um, why was that last one so important for politicians? <laughs> um, well, money talks, right? Um, money shows where your priorities are. When you look at a budget, you want to know what does the state care about? Look at its budget, right? So when you were able to um, create a new pot of money for them to utilize, um, that catches a lot of people's, a lot of lawmakers' attention. Um, that was, you know, the honey uh, to to attract the flies, if you will. Uh, so that that combination was successful in getting liquor to the level of passing and then getting vetoed and then getting a compromise bill passed. Um, and since that time, we've been working to get it back to that level where the need to go further becomes so compelling. Um, the opportunity to get additional revenue becomes so enticing that um, the stars align again. And we can, if not get full privatization, at least get um, more freedom for the entrepreneurs and consumers in Pennsylvania. So what was in that bill that uh, you got passed and why did the governor veto it? So the original bill that was vetoed allowed for um, the complete privatization of the wholesale and retail parts of our liquor control, which meant that anyone, in theory, who um, could afford a license uh, would bid on a license, and then they could use that license to open up a store to sell alcohol. Um, beer distributors would um, have some special privileges there in terms of their ability to get those licenses you know, there was an argument that, you know, these people have already played by the rules of the game and we don't want to punish them by changing the rules on them now. So, you know, we had to work out a compromise there on how to address um, the current system as it stood. Um, and then on the wholesale side, it would be a transition to private wholesalers. And over time, the PLC would give up its role as controlling um, the sale of alcohol to restaurants and stores in the Commonwealth. Uh, and then the liquor control board will remain, but purely as a public self safety regulatory entity. You know, they would still be inspecting, they would still be looking for compliance with the law, um, but they wouldn't be involved in the promotion of alcohol sales in the Commonwealth. So, why did the governor veto it? The unions, <laughs> um, public sector unions. I mean, they're incredibly powerful in Pennsylvania. Um, Ending the retail stores would mean, um, you know, hundreds, thousands of clerks uh, would have to find a new position. The state offered them in this bill the ability to bid on other state jobs. Um, there were some education provisions to help people get um, similar jobs in grocery stores or whatever alcohol stores would open up. 
Um, so they made an attempt to make sure these people had a plan B, uh, but that wasn't good enough for the unions. How did they fight you on this issue? I mean, presumably so, they didn't just say, hey, governor, veto this bill. And the governor says, oh, sure, sure, whatever you say. Yeah, the marketing campaign uh, was pretty brutal. Um, they ran ads. Uh, I think one of them had a young girl crying at a funeral because her dad was killed by, I think it was a drunk driver because we privatized alcohol. Uh, there was another ad about babies buying beer in the grocery store. I mean, just over the top things that were had really in, nothing to do with the reforms. As in the only uh, way to keep alcohol from hurting people is through state mandated liquor store or alcohol stores. And if anything else will lead to, to danger. Like, what did you think about that? Yeah, it was the idea of, you know, if we don't, if we privatize, we'll have a, a liquor store in every corner of the Commonwealth sort of idea. And it, there's just there's just no data to back that up. Um, there's nothing to indicate that we're better at preventing drug drivers or binge drinking um, or underage drinking in Pennsylvania because we have a controlled system. Uh, it's just not there. And so they it was a straw man argument um, that had no basis in fact, but the average person doesn't know those stats and statistics. So we had to inform lawmakers on what the numbers actually showed. Um, and then make the case for why people should be free to make these choices um, and why we should hold the Liquor Control Board in suspect because of their record of corruption and also their, you know, dual conflicting mission. Um, and that we this was about, you know, job creation and opportunity. And we wanted all those store clerks to have a job. Right. Um, this is about creating a system that is more robust and consumer friendly, not about you know, destroying family sustaining jobs, nothing of the sort. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about what you and your colleagues did to help get this legislation passed. I mean, theoretically, you've, you've got some interest, you're recommending some reforms, um, lawmakers are talking about it. Like, how do you help that process along? Yeah, so we were in constant communication with the, the bill sponsors, the lead sponsors, especially um, we had a lot of meetings strategizing, you know, how to address this argument, um, how do we bolster these fence sitters, um, you know, can do you have any research to help me um, persuade, you know, so-and-so lawmaker that's really concerned about, um, uh, you know, how many liquor stores will open up in his district, you know, because he's worried about the proliferation of liquor stores. So we had a lot of conversations about how many licenses should the state have? You know, how much, how expensive should they be? How should we distribute them? Um, lots in the logistics to address members' individual concerns. But then also we did much more public things like billboards. We strategically placed billboards all around the state, kind of, you know, asking, you know, why should government be in the booze business? You know, question mark, Wait, question mark. You as a think tank are buying billboards to, to put up along the highway. Absolutely. Yep. We're doing um, digital marketing, uh, lots of ads in strategic places, strategic outlets all around the state, um, you know, talking about some of the PLCB boondoggles, um, just showing the incompetence of that government entity, um, you know, relatively recent examples of their incompetence and why, um, why it's time for change. Uh, we also, you know, did a lot of op-eds, um, you know, all over the state, um, and we were strategic about it. You know, we looked at where were the fence sitters, where were the people that needed persuaded, 
um, where were the strongholds for the unions. Um, and then we targeted our ammunition to those areas to make sure that, you know, if you're someone living in that community, you, you know, you can't turn around without hearing about liquor privatization. So how did you get it to that point where even after vetoing, uh, lawmakers felt, uh, including the governor, felt like they had to do something? Yeah, so it, the polling that we did around this and other entities did polling as well just showed overwhelming support. Um, and by that point, when the veto happened, lawmakers were so invested, including one of the leaders in the House, that they were pretty determined that they weren't coming away empty handed. And so while the whole kit and caboodle had been shot down, that gave us lots of room to come back to the negotiating table with something a little more modest. And I mean, you know, talk about Overton window, you know, you aim high and then you have lots of room to come to a compromise and keep pushing in the direction that you need to go. How did that victory feel? Um, I mean, it was it was it was rewarding. Uh, it was a little bittersweet because we thought we could get the whole thing done. Um, nevertheless, we were really excited to see the first, really the first transformative change of any kind to the control of alcohol in Pennsylvania in over fifty years. Um, I think at that point it was about seventy-five years. Um, so that was, I mean. We were, we were elated by the success we made. Um, and at that time, we were pretty confident that it wasn't going to be too long before we had more success. So, um, you know, over the past five years, uh, we didn't have as many opportunities to drive it across so many times we thought we would. Um, well, that brings up what I was wanted to talk about. What have you been doing on this issue since? Yeah, so um, we have continued to push privatization. Um this past session, which just ended um, on November 30th in Pennsylvania, uh, we did get another privatization bill introduced. And that was, um, we hadn't done that in a couple of years. So we got a lawmaker out there talking again about why privatization is needed, while, why modernization is not enough. And the reason we were able to do that is because now we have the data to show that some of the modernization efforts did not result in the revenue that we are promised. So there's an impetus to go back and see how can we do this better. Um, and not only that, we had some um, incremental bills introduced, one that would allow people to open up private liquor stores um, and one that would allow for a, what they call a franchise model of stores. Um, so, so we're seeing um, new opportunities to push further. And we expect that we will have a similar privatization bill introduced this session, which just started on January 1st. Uh, how are you feeling about its chances? You know, I really don't know, James. Um, it's it's hard to say. There are so many things going on right now with the pandemic, especially, um, that these ongoing issues seem a little less, um, seem a little lower on the priority list. Um, but with all the spending that's going on, the stimulus spending um, that's going into states um, that we use, unfortunately, to prop up a lot of our programs, I think there's going to be a day of reckoning soon. And there might be interest in going back to some of these proposals and saying, hey, how can we get a billion dollar infusion um, in the Commonwealth? And and when that opportunity comes, um, this privatization proposal will be, will be ripe for the picking. Mm -hmm. I mean, hasn't the pandemic exposed some of the problems with the Liquor Control Board? 
Absolutely. Um, we closed our liquor stores, um, like other retail stores in this, this past spring. Um, and then they did open up their website, but it was, I mean, frankly, embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, you could not order liquor on the website. Um, we got to, we started calling it the liquor lottery. Uh, because it took, you know, multiple tries. I know one of my friends spent almost six hours trying to buy a bottle of vodka. And then to make matters worse, because you couldn't get liquor anywhere, because remember, only wine and beer are available in grocery stores. You couldn't get liquor anywhere. So people started going across the border to buy liquor. I live about 20 minutes from the border of Ohio. And I could not buy liquor in Ohio because I have a Pennsylvania driver's license. And they were so worried about Pennsylvanians swarming stores in this time of COVID that um, Pennsylvania and Delaware um, stopped, would not sell liquor to Pennsylvanians. So I was resorted, I had to resort to asking my sister, who has no high license, to buy liquor for me that I could go pick up. Um, so it, it became a disaster. So where can people learn more about this issue? So they can go to CommonwealthFoundation.org and look up liquor and find all kinds of interesting information on um, how we would go about fixing our liquor control system. Um, but my favorite resource of all, which is probably the most entertaining of all, um, is a post that we did put together in June. Um, and if you just search, go to our website, CommonwealthFoundation.org and search boondoggles, you'll find it. But it's a top 10 boondoggles in the Liquor Control Board. And that really sets the stage for why reform is still needed in this area. And, um, you know, we're, again, we're unique in terms of how much we control our alcohol, but I think there's lessons to learn here for other states that are facing other parts of their economy that are tightly controlled by state government. Elizabeth, congratulations for having shifted the window in your state and good luck this session. Thank you, James. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.